This is Paul Nobles from the Eat Form Coaches Course. I am with Mike T. Nelson today. Normally we have a guest, but we decided to go to one of the experts on the topic that we're going to talk about tonight, and luckily we have that person on staff. And so <laughs> uh, we are going to be talking about biofeedback, and so if you're not familiar with biofeedback, what... The topic at hand is really going to be is how can you work out with not, without getting hurt, be able to work out more effectively, and how can you move better? And so what I'll do, you know, if anybody has any questions, you know, in the course, they can ask them, but uh, I'm fairly certain I'll be able to come up with some, some cool questions for Mike, but... Mike, why don't you um, run through kind of like your first experiences, you know, learning about biofeedback and and sort of kind of the biofeedback 101 for people. Yeah. So the, the term biofeedback is nothing more fancier than just, in essence, listening to your body. I mean, there's the technical term of biofeedback where you're maybe watching something, trying to alter your heart rate, that type of thing. So here we're just using it as a, a global term to determine, like you were saying, how can you move better and is there a way you can test it? So in essence, I think of, can you do exercise and get a higher level of performance with less cost? So that cost being, you know, being tired, lack of energy, injury, things of that nature. Um, so I started doing this type of training probably about six years ago now. Um, so I had taken some training from Z Health, and they had shown, you know, some just uh, muscle testing, some stuff from applied kinesiology. And one of the other guys, uh, Frankie, that was there also um, extended that to a simple test, which we'll go over, to determine how an exercise, in essence, match matches up with your biomechanics. So I explained to people in terms of, have you ever done an exercise, maybe like a back squat, where you look at the video, Everything looks fine. It looks good. But in essence, at the end, you're like, ah, just didn't feel very good. Or maybe you've done a different exercise and it maybe looked similar, but you're like, wow, that felt really good. Or even in my case, I do a lot of asymmetric uh, off-axis stuff, like a Jefferson deadlift, also called like a straddle deadlift. You're actually stepping one foot over the bar. So it's this kind of weird, goofy, off-centered looking exercise. And for my particular structure, that actually works really well. So it's how can you determine what exercise will actually help your tissue, your structure, and your nervous system the very best. And what you find out is that that may not always be symmetrical exercises. So I explain it to people that if I have my little blue Jetta, and something happens and I bend the front suspension arm of the car, I'm probably just going to fix the right front suspension arm. Now, I could drive the car straight by always turning the wheel a little bit. I could get the car to go straight, but I only really would want to replace that one suspension arm. So in essence, if you've got like an asymmetry in the body, which is a different topic I'm sure we'll get into, you can use your nervous system, in essence, to do symmetrical movements. Um, however, there may be a higher cost to that and the long-term fix to change your structure may actually be only working on one side of the body or in one direction for a period of time until you kind of in essence get that area fixed up so the question i mean there's there's a ton of questions that that i'm thinking of right off the the top of my head right um and one of the things that occurs to me right off the bat is if you're doing something and it's I always kind of point this out and we, we think of it and when you think of it it seems like oh yeah duh of course mm -hmm. um, but when you do a CrossFit workout or when you do a powerlifting meet or, or you know or test a one rep max or you know, um, you know really just about anything right you know um you know uh olympic lifting total these types of things these are tests and essentially if 
your movement patterns aren't efficient, it will hurt the amount of work or potentially injure you, right? And mm -hmm. so, so part of the thinking with biofeedback, and and I'm not near as, I think what when I was introduced to it um, here in Minneapolis, they have a gym that 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 works with it. Um, do you? Yeah, do, Ave, yeah Jen Sinclair. Yeah, Jen Sinclair. Mm -hmm. They're fairly well known in the blogosphere, and they they write a lot of articles. One of the interesting things about that I saw Jen. Um, write about she normally um, competes in um, you know powerlifting competitions and she was com normally competes sumo but she you know trusted biofeedback so much one day that instead of going sumo she decided to go conventional and then ended up PRing the lift and mm -hmm. you know what is I think something that really changed the way that I viewed my workouts, I mean, like fundamentally changed everything about me. I and mean, there's probably three or four things that I could point to like that. But I think I was just sort of sick and tired of working out hurt. And like it didn't, oh, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, people are going to go, oh, you know, yeah, you know, you shouldn't work out injured. No, I'm talking about working out at 60%. You know what I mean? And what happens is, you know, we tend to tell people, hey, focus on your weaknesses, which I agree, you should focus on your weaknesses. But we don't always tell them the right way to focus on their weaknesses. You know, and so, yep. like, as an example, um, if somebody's not good overhead squatter, Right. You know, um, how are we fixing those movement patterns? You know, um, and I'm trying to remember, I, I will not be able to um, to get this guy's name. So you probably know what I'm talking about. But what he said at the time was very controversial because um, he said that, you know, you could increase the squat by using single body movements do you know what i'm talking about because it was a it was a this was you know but what he was referring to is if you're training athletes and you're training athletes to get better at athletics athleticism that the squat wasn't necessarily going to be something that is going to be a great fit for every single person and his argument was that split squats lunges things that sort of developed the body, you know, and made the body stronger ultimately could make you squat better. He wasn't saying that necessarily you would want to do that to become the best power lifter, right? Because, yeah. you know, power Mike Boyle said that before. I think He's actually it, had his athletes not back squat for periods of time. Yeah, and that's who I think I'm referring to as Mike Boyle. Mm -hmm. um, because I uh, that that was another thing that really kind of taught me a lot. And so, you know, I ended up moving to more Zercher squats. Tony Gentlecor was a good one, um, mm -hmm. you know, holding a plate um, so I could get to yep. depth a little bit easier and then kind of strengthen those uh, accessory muscles, you know. Um, so ultimately the movement pattern was better and then you're stronger and then you get better as an athlete. And so... Talk a little bit about some of the tests that, you know, simplistic tests that athletes can use to kind of test a range of motion. Yeah, so so a couple of things, and I'll get back to the test too, is that um, it's kind of a little damn John quote of, you know, back squats are not necessarily bad, but how you squat may, you know, be bad in terms of your knees, your joints, and that type of thing. Um in my own experience teaching people lifting back squats, probably the last thing I teach anyone just because of the mobility requirements and stuff, overhead squats are probably even after that, to be honest. Um, so the beauty of biofeedback is that it allows you to determine how you're doing the exercise and if it's beneficial for you at that period of time. So if we look at just a, a standard periodized type program, 
the, let's say you're doing a powerlifting type program, the goal at the end of 16 weeks or however many weeks the program is, if we measured you, hopefully you would be stronger, right? So that would be a positive adaptation. If you're doing CrossFit, hopefully your wads time would be less. You can do more work. You can do the heavier weights. Those would all be positive adaptations. So if we go all the way down to how could you look within one particular session and see if you're getting a positive adaptation. So you can do that by actually looking at range of motion. So if the range of motion increases, all things being equal, you're doing everything the same way, that would be considered a positive adaptation. So when you do the test, that's simply all you're looking for. You could do muscle tests, you could do a bunch of other stuff. So let's say I'm gonna to try to determine if I'm doing deadlifts today, and I'm gonna test sumo versus conventional for the sake of argument. So I just put, let's say, a lightweight on the bar, I'll do 135, so even if I've got metal plates, it's the same height. So I walk up, I test my range of motion, which I'll explain to you how to do that in just a sec. I do just a couple easy reps to the sumo, test it again. All right, so note where that is. I do the same thing with conventional, note where that is. And the one that I get a greater range of motion would be the one that I would do for that day. So no, I'm just going to stop, stop you for just a second, Mike. Because what we're about to tell people is going to sound like the biggest voodoo thing you've ever heard in your life. But Oh, yeah. But, but I mean, I have to say every, every person that I know that has experienced it has a positive experience. And what I think that, you know, people are going to, you know, hopefully as they start to kind of explore it with themselves is start to realize that, you know, muscle imbalances exist. You know, there's a lot of things that really affect who you are. And so in, in, in training your weaknesses, you don't necessarily just like do that overhead squat harder. Right. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Well, and, and that happens, you know, it happens a lot. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, if, if you're a gym owner, as an example, um, and you're in the business of keeping athletes healthy. So you keep getting those checks for them coming to your gym, you know, knowing how to have them move well, right. Continuously progress and then be able to see very visibly that they've increased their range of motion. That's a positive, even though, yep. I mean, like I said, when I was, when I was first exposed to it, I was like, come on, seriously. Yeah. And then as I started to do it, what I started to realize was maybe one day of pull-ups, you know, didn't dramatically affect my, you know, range of motion. But if I had two to three, you know, sets of pull-ups or, or chin-ups, you know, kind of program. And by that third session, you know, my range of motion got to a point where it was kind of a negative, then I would modify out of it. So, um, so I, I interrupted you, but, but uh, uh, you okay. keep going. we did have a good yeah, question so. and I am going to get it, get to it. I don't know if she's goes by Barb, but, uh, Barbara asked it. So I'll get to it in just a second. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so I'll get back to your points on that too. So the question then is how would you do it, right? So very simply, you can use any range of motion. Um, the one we typically use is just a standard toe touch. So you put both feet, you know, together, have your knees relatively locked out, but just a soft, you know, lock. We don't want them to pass out or anything. And then you would just slowly slide your fingers down the front part of your legs. And then you would stop wherever you feel any tension. So that may be your head, your neck, your back, doesn't matter. And the key is that you would stop wherever you feel any tension and when you feel any tension. So it's not a purpose, it's not designed as a stretch. So on most days, if everything goes well, I can usually get my, my fingers past my toes. Some people I know can only get a couple inches past their knees. They can stretch you know, a foot further if they push themselves, but it doesn't matter. You're just using a marker on yourself to compare only to yourself. So if I did, for example, the sumo deadlift, and I get my fingers just to the end of my shoes, I do a conventional deadlift, 
and I get, let's say, half an inch more, but that day I would do a conventional deadlift. And the, the argument for people that are like, well, that's just that's crazy talk. That just seems insane. I would ask them for most people, is there really that much difference if you sumo deadlift or conventional deadlift? Probably not. Now I know that, you know, the programming that, you know, certain things are strongman, for example, you can't sumo deadlift and there are restrictions, things like that. Um, but I would say for most people, if you're just comparing, let's say those two versions, probably doesn't really matter which one you do per se. So I would say for the sake of argument, just take a period of time, you know, measure your range of motion, do the one you get a little bit better range of motion, see what your results are. Well, you don't really have anything to lose. Probably the best example, I think sumo deadlift and, and conventional deadlift is um, kind of too similar. So what I'm going to do is propose that um, a better example might be a back squat compared to a deadlift, right? And so... Sure. You know, if you're programming, as an example, um, CrossFit, um, you know, that this might not be a, a great fit. But it, there, you know, there's certainly an argument for it that maybe some of the class might be working on their back squat that day based on their range of motion and some of the class be working on deadlift. So basically, you know, you take what? Let's say... Uh, comparable amount. So let's say 115 on a back squat and let's say 145 on a deadlift to be comparable. And you do three squats, five squats, whatever it is, um, and you test to see if your range of motion is more and you get to be about the same or you know maybe even compromise a little bit. But then you find that you know when you deadlift, um, you reach down and you actually gain two inches, then that would seemingly point that this might be a better day for deadlifting. And there's a lot of factors that could be going on there. You might have run a marathon. You could have used, you know, the muscles that basically are going to allow you to squat with better range of motion. And so therefore, um, allowing those muscles a little bit more rest, um, I have to say, you know, I, I really can't explain this enough. Visible change happened to me when I went from doing random to doing smart. And now my random is less. Like I only do random maybe a couple times a week. But because I, you know, am able to program around the random, specifically, you know, do I test my range of motion? To be honest with you, I don't. You know, I do have a, a good understanding of what makes me feel better what I've learned from this process, you know what I'm saying? Because when I first started off in kind of testing and things of this nature, what I started to figure out was some of these muscle imbalances are really kind of difficult. And sometimes you do have to sort of work through, you know, some some problems, but it still sort of points out to the fact that, you know, if you're if you're struggling squatting, right? And then you start to test and it's your third day and every single day your range of motion is getting worse, you're about to get hurt, you know? You're not going in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> and so so to have a way to test your athletes. And so with that introduction, I'm going to bring Barbara's question into mm -hmm. the question because I think that it speaks to this. So when is it enough to tell a client he or she is working against her body's nature versus her body is not well conditioned enough to feel good doing that exercise? You want to take that? Um, so is there a question, when is it okay to tell the client that? Well, what she's saying is she has a deconditioned athlete, right? Mm -hmm. And she's wondering when, uh, you know, should she, should she say keep pushing or should she say 
you're really not ready for that yet. Here is what you can do as a description of why I think you're not ready for this. But I think ultimately what, you know, I'll let you say it, but I think what ultimately you're going to say is if she's testing range of motion, there won't be a need for your intervention, you know, because yep. there it's, it's logical to not work against the way that your body wants to move. Yeah. Yeah. And so what you find with testing is that it's just another way to ensure higher quality movement. And what you find that's a little bit goes against what most people think is especially at first, uh, a lot of people who are new, any high amount of fatigue will pretty much destroy a lot of their motor patterns. So you find that a lot of people at first do a lot of stuff with almost complete rest. And that's how I train most people to start, keep the quality as high as possible test it, make sure they're getting better. Um, so you're trying to account, you're trying to add quality work over quantity. And in the short term, you actually do a little bit less, but if you progress that out, you actually end up doing more in the long term. And the adaptations you get are actually more specific and are actually a lot better in that case. Um, so if you're testing, the client will actually just kind of guide you in the direction they want to go. So you don't really have to worry too much about it. Usually the biggest concern at first is that the client's going to think you're a nut job cuckoo bird. Um, so how you <laughs> explain it to them may take a little bit. Some people may buy into it. Some people may not. In my experience, the people who have very little experience with fitness almost buy into it all the time. You're just like, hey. Let's do this. Let's see what's better. Like, does that make sense to you? Yeah, this one's better. Cool. It's literally not that hard. The, the people with the much harder buy-in are usually other fitness professionals, <laughs> you know, yeah. because they have a lot of unlearning to go with all that stuff. If it weren't for the fact that my body dramatically changed, you know, I probably wouldn't have bought it. You know what I mean? But I was op yep. I was open to the fact because it, it really sort of hit me at a time where, you know, I was doing three on one off. Right. I was kind of doing random workouts and um, I sort of stagnated. And, and this is fairly common. I mean, I think I think we mm -hmm. all need to be honest about this stuff that, you know, you get to a point where you sort of plateau and then you go, well, OK, how do I get better? And then I thought, well, gosh, you know, if, you know, if I didn't constantly have like a little alien, like, you know, like growing, <laughs> growing out of my right glute, I might be able to actually accomplish a bit more. And once I started to move in the patterns that my body wanted to move, um, which is going to bring me to kind of my next question, um, that it allowed, you know, really muscle adaptation better. I have to make a strong argument for rest here, though, because even even as you're moving um, more correctly, allowing your body to adapt to that more correct movement is how you know lean tissue happens. And of course, you know there's a food element there as well, and we cover that mm -hmm. to death, so we don't really need to cover that. But the other person that really uh, I, I thought made a big impact on me was not Kelly Starrett. It was Dean Somerset. And yeah. um, one of the things that, that Dean, uh, well, there was some interesting things that Dean taught me and it, it, it relates to, to this. And I, I think that, um, you know, most of the biofeedback guys sort of agree here and you know you might be different so you know that's that's mm -hmm. what's that's what science is about right trying to kind of come to a meeting of the minds and and i'll share my experience you share your experience and then we kind of make an argument for it and then we'll see where we go in the middle but in general um dean's not a huge foam roller guy right before mm -hmm. before working out and the basic theory on why you don't static stretch um, before workouts is because static stretch gets to a point of pain as it relates to the muscle. At any point, you can, you know, um, say, well, you've got that kind of right. Um, you know, some of this stuff is information I've gotten from seminars years back. Um, 
and then you know work that I did uh, with Dean privately but uh, one of the the so so the whole the whole pain theory right pain basically constricts the muscle and so you'd be better off kind of active stretching and kind of like loosening the wheels a little bit the other thing that Dean taught me that that was once again I mean kind of a game changer um, is don't ask your little muscles to do what your big muscles are supposed to be doing and so if your mm -hmm. athletes are saying you know my lower back is hurting it's usually because they're not in position to have the primary movers doing the work um, so I'll hand it over to you, Mike. And what part did I get somewhat right? And what part would you say you've had some contradictory um, information? Yeah, I would say in general, I agree. It's funny you mentioned foam rollers. I just sent a thing out to my newsletter list about foam rollers today. And I've um, talking about Mike Boyle. He's actually called me out several times on his blog because I don't like foam rollers. I never been a big fan of them because most people flop around them on like a dead fish and they try to create as much pain as humanly possible before they lift which to me is just the doesn't make any sense at all you know if you're if you're on there trying to roll out your it band if you've ever done a, a cadaver dissection which i did last year on fresh tissue your it band is ridiculously tight and it's super thick and super dense and it's supposed to be that way all you're doing is if you're applying your IT band runs this way, and if you're foam rolling this way, all you're doing is just squishing it. You're not you're not making any changes to it. Um, so I'm not a big fan of foam rollers. Eh. I used to use them. I mean, I used to buy them and give them to clients years ago. Mm -hmm. And as part of my assessment, they would come in. I'd throw them on a foam roller. I'd, I'd roll their IT band. They'd ah, they'd scream in horror and pain. And I go ah, you got a problem. You know, and then of course I'd tell them to foam roll more often, <laughs> right. and you know I did it myself. Yeah, and, for sure. And nothing really changed all that much, to be honest. Um, not a big fan of static stretching either. I mean, you can look at the literature. The good part is that I don't think static stretching has a huge detrimental effect. But if you do a lot of prolonged static stretching holds, you do see decreases in strength and power. Granted, that does not last very long. It does go away pretty fast. But if you think about what are we doing for static stretching, you're literally taking a muscle to its end range of motion, you're holding it there, and then you're waiting for it to be weaker, which to me doesn't make any sense, right? So if you would want to go to an end range, you would want to be as strong as possible at the end range to reduce your risk of injury, not as weak as possible. So again, I'm much more of a bigger fan of uh, active mobility drills, things of that nature, some joint mobility, and ways to increase the end range of motion strength to be as high as possible, not as low as possible. Yeah, I mean, when I say to people, and, and once again, I'm not like, you know, an amazing mover, right? Um, but I don't do any stretching. I, I, I use the bar you know, to, to get to where I'm at. And, you know, oftentimes I think you, what you find is that, uh, just using the bar you and, and getting through like a basic warm up period is going to be enough to increase your range of motion and get a good workout. And so, you know, if you have to, if you're really sore and you're kind of knotted up and things of that nature, um, I mean, did you, were you able to cure Sherry of her foam rolling habits? Cause have you ever seen, no, she got to stop, stop talking to me about it. <laughs> Sherry foam rolls for like 45 minutes before she works out like her, you know, but, yeah. but a, I lot, mean, a lot of these guys, yeah, a lot of, a lot of the people that, that work out, you know, as power lifters, um, I mean, they're, they're looking at three, four hour sessions you know, so 45 minutes on the foam roll. They're like all rolling around on the foam rollers. Yeah. Um, and like, hey guys, I'm over here working out, you know. Yeah, um, but they're stronger, they're stronger than me, <laughs> so, you know, I, I can't complain. But I, I do think that, um, 
I do think that it's not always, you know, it, it's just, it's just unnecessary. Now, Barbara's saying that um, there's some studies that talk about static stretching post workout. Now, right. I'll I'll use a lacrosse ball occasionally, you know, if my my glutes kind of knotted up or something like that. Um, I'll just go up against a wall and try to roll it out a little bit, and and you know. I would I would almost refer to that as sort of like pain relief um, more than anything, but uh, you know who who realistically static stretches post workout right you just worked out you know so I mean I don't care what that study says you know I don't think it's going to be enough of a benefit and I have to say like I, I have tried various things over the last you know eight years. Um, and if you'd seen a result doing it, you would continue doing it. And, you know, the simple fact is the good majority of people don't static stretch post-workout and there's probably a good reason for that. Yeah. And, and my thought on that too, and I'll get back to the warm up, but yeah, my cool down is I, I walk out of the gym and then I go get something to eat. <laughs> yeah. Um, if I've done a, a really heavy strength session and I'm really trying to push the volume, um, then I will purposely do some stuff. So your goal then is to go from a very high level of sympathetic stimulation to be as parasympathetic as fast as possible. So for a while I would actually go out, um, get something to eat and drink, just like a shake. And then I would have uh, headphones I would put in. Uh, there's some different programs you can get that will alter the beat a little bit from your left ear to your right ear, which can help you get into a parasympathetic state faster. And then I would just relax and do some breathing drills for like 20 minutes. Um, so my goal there was to try to get myself into as relaxed state as, as fast as possible. So I do think that, you know, if the average person just walked to their car, wrote down what they did in their training journal, just did some breathing stuff for even a couple minutes, I think that could definitely be beneficial. So you don't need to be walking around in that, you know, super amped up type state anymore anyway. Um, in terms of warm up stuff, I mean, several years ago, I was such a, basically a mess from, I've had all sorts of injuries, busted my right ankle, ripped out my right shoulder, separated my left shoulder, pulled both my groins, both my hip flexors, uh, open heart surgery when I was four and a half. So I've got a midline scar from a thoracotomy. Uh, my right eye sits up and out farther. So if you notice, sometimes my head gets wacky tilted and stuff because I used to have a head tilt of probably about like that because that would line up uh, my vision, which causes scoliosis and a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so at one point, I was literally an hour and a half warm up before I could lift anything. <laughs> so by the time I entered the gym, up to the time I did my first working set, most days was literally almost an hour and a half. I would foam roll and I would static stretch and I did some core mobility and then I did some active mobility and then I would start a warm up with just a, my warm ups for just a deadlift to pull 315 would be like eight sets. You know, just it, it just took me that long to feel like I had to do all this stuff before I was going to do something without injuring. Um, you know, now, man, eh, that's not too much, but I do things periodically during the day in training so that my movement doesn't get so um, eroded. And the biggest change I found was doing specific lifts via biofeedback that allowed myself to actually move better. Um, so once I changed my lifting and then during the day did not allow myself to get my movement so degraded, um, now most of the time it's just not a big deal. Um, so one of the, the tests you can do is what is a heavier lift you can do Actually, without much of a warm-up at all, the caveat being, make sure you're 100% sure that you can do it and execute it safely. So if there's a day you feel kind of messed up, probably not the day to try it. Um, but there's usually some threshold people can get under. So most days I can probably pull 315 to 365 with really not much of any warm-up at all. Now, I don't do that all the time because that is a very high risk, but at some level for me personally, I want to maintain the ability to do that if I had to, because that's a kind of a baseline marker for my overall movement. 
the the other thing too you know once again we we similar to what i was talking about with uh, sumo compared to conventional and i changed it to deadlift to back squat i think a lot of people are going to go he's touching his toes because he's doing a leg workout and we're not just talking about leg workouts um right we're talking about uh pull-ups um compared to chin-ups right um these types of things and so for instance if you were um you know you wanted to test kipping pull-ups compared to strict chin-ups um I got bad news for you on that one because <laughs> almost always the the strict chin ups are going to win, you know, mm-hmm. um, just because just the demand, um, and and you know it sort of depends on what your movement patterns are like, you know. But mm-hmm. if if uh, if like as an example, let's say that um, I was going to do five kipping pull ups compared to two strict chin-ups. I might not notice a difference one way or the other, but let's say that I did 10 strict chin-ups compared to 35 kipping pull-ups, right? Now, all of a sudden, those last 10, I start to get, you know, I have to get that real jerking motion to get up there and could compromise some range of motion. So, volume will affect that and that's something that you got to keep in mind you know that you know what you really the end game is to progress as an athlete and so i think that kind of addresses like barbara's earlier question you know is and and what's what's really kind of cool like when you see it in real life you know if you've ever been at dave's gym which mike and i have Mm -hmm. um you see older athletes, injured athletes, you know, that's the kind of people that they get. Um, it's not like, you know, this, you know, standard, you know, we're going to yeah. kill this, you know, <laughs> it's not like that. You know I mean? They definitely have some really, really super accomplished athletes. Um, but in general, uh, they have people that are just trying to get better, which I would make the argument that, the good majority of the people in all of our gyms are not beast mode killers, you know, trying to squat 1,100 pounds. You know, the good majority of them are just trying to look good naked, live a healthy life, and feel like, you know, um, the one thing that always comes up, I know you hear this too, but we, we hear this so much, it came up probably three times today. You know, I just want to look to the level of what I work out, like my hard mm-hmm. work, you know. I think to a certain extent, one of the arguments that, that I always make is that your trump card of hard, you can kind of use up, right? So let's say you sat on the couch, right? You hadn't done much. Then for six months, you work up some some work capacity, and you can get through a good fifteen minute high intensity session, and it doesn't you know you don't feel like you need to go to the emergency room, which is awesome, right? Um, you you worked hard to get there. The only problem is is for you to get better as an athlete from there, you've already used up your trump card for you know, the 15 minute high intensity, right? You're, you're only going to con- you get marginally better at 15 minute high intensity from that point forward. And so, you know, one of the things that I think as we talk about programming and varying programming is how can we get out of the model of, you know, because, you know, if we're honest as coaches, one of the things, and, and I hear this from my wife a lot, is she likes going to the gym. She likes feeling challenged for 15 to 20 minutes and then walking out of there with a sweat. And I'm mm-hmm. like, that's awesome, but you might not have got better there. You know what I mean? Yep. You might have just, st- you, you just, and, and hey, that's awesome. 
you worked out, you beat the guy sitting on the couch. The only problem is oh, you, yeah. you beat the guy sitting on the couch the first day you didn't sit on the couch, you know? Yeah. And so we can get like really caught up in, you know, well, I'm working out, you know, feeling better and stuff like that. Well, then don't talk to me about, I want to see results for how I look because to do that, you need to get better at exercise. And, and that's where I feel like gym owners need to take the reins from the abs in the kitchen people. Mm-hmm. If, you know, the, the abs in the kitchen people, the argument there is more chicken and kale, less rest of <laughs> stuff. You know what I mean? And, you know, that's fine. You know, we can definitely talk about, you know, cleaning up some bad habits. But at the same time, if we're talking about trying to get better as an athlete, moving better, eating more, and not getting injured is a real important part of that equation. And I think as coaches, we need to make that argument. And so that's really another another example of what Barbara was saying is that you got to be a little bit of a salesperson to these folks. And you've got to you've got to say, look, we're gonna try a few things with you, but the goal is to get you better. Um, any any thoughts on that? Because we do have one other question, and we're kind of, you know, we do have a few few minutes here, so it's kind of fun to be able yeah. to take a few questions. Um, yeah, the short version is I 100% agree. Um, so you know, when I was in the lab, you could come down to the lab, and I could make you do repeated wind gates, which are just horrible, right? So get on a bike, pedal up to a super high intensity, and then we drop like several hundred watts on you, force you to pedal for another 30 seconds, and then do that repeatedly. And the first couple of days, pretty horrible. Um, after that, yeah, you'll definitely get better. But if we do the exact same protocol and you put out the exact same amount of effort each time, at some point, there's no additional stimulus for overload for your body. Now, it'll still probably feel ridiculously hard pretty much every time you do it. But from an adaptation standpoint, your body's like, eh, this is nothing new. I've done this for the past four weeks already. So I, there's no reason for me to get any better. Um, and the, the danger with a lot of it is that it can be very much uh, fatigue-based. Like I went to the gym. My marker for my progress in my head is how hard did I try? So if I had to crawl out of the gym to my car, wow, that must have been a pretty good session. Now, you may have done more work. You may not have. So if I look at um, deadlifts, right? So let's say you do one person does 275 for, let's say, sets of five. And let's say they're pretty advanced. So we work them all the way up and they do eight sets. And we let them take as much rest as they want. Let's say it takes them 45 minutes. Another person, we say, all right, you're going to do the same thing, but you're going to do it in a lot less time. So, yeah, the other person got a little better density, but if they only did four sets, they literally did half the amount of work. Even though I can guarantee you that if you compress that time short enough, it's going to feel a hell of a lot worse. And so that person would then leave and go, wow, I did it, man. I really, I conquered that one. That was awesome. Well, over time, if they're not adding more work, or changing it variety there's different ways they literally don't have that extra stimulus for their body they may be doing a little better density and that's definitely a good thing but if you look uh, volume tends to be kind of the biggest driver for uh, hypertrophy for calories burned and also for strength so i'm a big fan of the amount of work that you're doing granted you can't escalate that linearly forever um, but measure how much volume you did how much density you did, and then what was the max weight that you lifted. And if you're you know, cycling those things up, doing a little bit of a taper and then back up again, if you're doing more of that over time, you are giving your body that positive reason to adapt. And that actually, when people in my write programs for them, they usually complain that, wow, the first couple of weeks felt way too easy. And they get to five or six sets, they're like, wow, that was a lot harder than I thought. Um, but I know that they're doing more work over time and that's the big key. So, um, what about the concept of kind of building off of positive energy and Mm -hmm. using different ways to look at workouts from the idea of you can 
have a personal record every single day, right? Sure. So measuring things differently. Can you talk about that concept a little bit? Yeah. So if you look at it and you say, okay, could you do better density? Could you do more weight? And could you do more volume? And you say that that's specific per each exercise, there's usually some direction you can move in and then do better. Right. So you, you can track it. I know Dave has a program called Adaptifier. I use that. Um, and the good part is you can usually get a small win every day. So I think that's definitely a positive. If people are just doing more body composition, I mean, I definitely think that can work. If your goal is, let's say, to be Olympic weightlifter or powerlifter, or you have to do, say, powerlifting three specific exercises, yeah. You know, it's a little bit trickier then, right? Because powerlifting, you have to do a squat, bench, and deadlift. Um, that's what you get graded on. But at some point, you have to kind of work in a little bit more specific things to that. Um, but if someone's just, you know, wants to feel better and look better, um, I think having those small wins is definitely a big positive. If your goal is a performance uh, strength-based outcome, just like any other program you do, at some point you have to measure uh, your progress towards those specific goals too. So one of the, the other thing, you know, that, that kind of comes up in this scenario is the age of the athlete. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you look at eat to perform, you know, it, it, it's in some ways it, it reflects how fitness happens for a lot of people, you know, where, uh, you know, through your 20s, maybe even early 30s, you know, you pretty much stay kind of active and you kind of look like, you know, you're not totally, you know, out of shape. Then all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, mid 30s happen. It's like, whoa, what just happened to me? You know, and like life just happened to you. And by about 40 to 50, right, that's kind of that sweet spot for eat to perform age. Um, what I think is sort of interesting from that standpoint is that, you know, like Scott, you know, Scott um, Nutter um, from powerlifting mm -hmm. and, you know, Scott said to me something that, that I kind of took to heart and I really ran with was you have a lot more potential than a lot of the rest of us because we've been working 30 to 35 years killing ourselves and we've worked through various injuries and all this other type of stuff. Whereas you kind of come in fresh. So a lot of people look at, um, you know, well, I'm just starting and, you know, I feel like, you know, I have this much to go and you don't, right. You know, there's a lot of advantages to not beating the shit out of yourself for a long period yeah. of time. And then being able to see where you can go, you know, from a work capacity standpoint. But the reason why I was bringing it up, because as, you know, a 47-year-old person, um, I basically go super hard twice a week. You know, when you break it down, uh, you know, I really want to be 100% for my strength day. And I really want to be 100% for my long endurance day. My other days, um, you know, some days I just knock it out the park and, you know, like whether it's a wad, whether it's a slow circuit or something like that. Um, you know, some days you feel good. Some days, you know, you're just not going to hit it out the park. You're just showing up, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have a 28 year old athlete, right, and you're not encouraged them to maybe see if they can go hard three days a week, right? Because work always matters, you know? And, you know, the one thing that that people used to hear, and, and, and I kind of get why they heard it, but we were emphasizing rest as, you know, part of the program as, you know, recovery is kind of a big deal. And then we would say to people, look, you're working out too much. That applies for a lot of people. Some people it doesn't apply to, you know. Um, certainly, if you're doing two days, you know, for the last three years and you're eating 1,300 calories, well, you know, 
let, let's let's see what your heart rate is. Let's see what your yeah. you know recovery ability is and, and things of this nature. But as gym owners, if you know an athlete is doing things fairly smart and they have some athletic ability, you want to encourage them to be able to kind of continuously push that top in, right? You know, where, um, you know, there are days where you're not going all out, but there are days where you're really kind of pushing, pushing that, you know, what are your thoughts on, on that idea? Kind of comparing, yeah, I think that applies to comparing yeah, the two, kind of everyone, Yeah. you know, I mean, I think quality work, you know, like, like we talked last time is accumulate the highest quality work possible and just keep accumulating more of that, you know, and that's going to be different for everybody. You know, some people I work with clients who they can go into the gym and do, you know, low rep strength stuff. One guy in Florida, a power lifter, four or five days a week, he emails me back after been working for, you know, about eight weeks. He's like, this HRV thing is kind of stupid. It never changes. <laughs> and he would go to the gym and just do huge amounts of volume for, you know, two and a half hours hardly ever dropped now that's he's kind of a, a freak of nature that way uh, most people it's going to drop for 48 hours and it's going to take a while to come back up um, but i think uh, everyone would do themselves a favor of figuring out how they can do quality work first and then start to accumulate that more the catch is that that may not be a direct path so right now i'm doing some strength work a little bit of hypertrophy and actually working a lot uh, to slowly increase my HRV and my aerobic base level, because I know that that's not directly related to my goals, but that will allow me in the future to do more higher quality work. As a higher aerobic base or aerobic level of fitness allows you to recover faster from strength days, from one set to the next set, that type of thing. So it's a little bit of a kind of a sideways detour to try to get back to the direction I'm going. Um, and that's the hard part for people because a lot of times they don't want to take the detour. They want to just try harder and keep plowing ahead with what they're doing. Well, there's interesting, interesting thing about what you're saying there um, with heart rate variability. Um, one, you know, I would love to see what would happen to him if he went for a 16 mile run. You know what I mean? No, I'm sure it would destroy him. He doesn't because, run at all. Right, but... but not specific goals, but... Yeah. No, and, and I understand, like, you know, your goals, but but it does sort of point to what we talked about earlier, that, you know, when you do something consistently the same, the adaptation becomes harder. You're not going to make, you know, amazing gains, and there's some other ways to yeah. think of it. But But I would actually make a strong argument that, you want to see some oranges, maybe some reds occasionally, because you know that you've at least stretched out your system, so your body's asked to adapt to it, right? And like you said in a, in a thing, that HRV is really more art than science at this point, and I yeah. and I do sort of agree with that. I think that you you might get a green at eighty eight. But you could also get a green at 101, right? And so both of them, you could technically work out. But at the end of the day, 101 is a little bit better. One of the things that, that you know, my wife um, said to me, because she, she, her, her HRVs are routinely around 100. Oh. Uh, yeah. So, um, but... Today, she got a good HRV um, after having about four and a half hours worth of sleep because she was on call last night. And mm -hmm. she's like, see, this thing doesn't make any sense um, yeah. because my HRV is high. I said, let's see you go throughout the day, be relatively stressed because you haven't had enough sleep, and let's see what your HRV is tomorrow. And that's, yeah, that's what I typically see is that, you know, like in, with my long runs, as an example, 
Sometimes it's hard to get kind of deep sleep. Sometimes it it's a, it works out fine. Um, but if I don't get great sleep, it doesn't necessarily mean my HRV is going to be bad that day, but it often shows up the following day. And so, so that's um, something to sort of think of. There was a question that came up in the, in the, the forum, and I could maybe take a look. I actually, um, right as we were joining the broadcast, I thought to answer it. You had, you had given an answer. Um, but maybe we sort of covered it, but I, or I could look back, but, um, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to, with sleep, there's normally a delay too. So HRV seems to correspond more to sleep debt than acute loss of sleep. Because like I was saying that same thing, right? So first time I've been doing it, I've been doing it daily for almost four years now. I've been using it with clients for almost three and a half. And at first I was like, what the hell, this thing's broke. Why, you know, four hours of sleep, says I'm good. Next day, not so good. And then the flip side was also true. I'd sleep in on a Saturday, sleep 11 hours, and I'd look and it's amber. I'm like, what, what the hell, this thing is not working. And then you realize, well, wait a minute, exactly what you said. So the next day, right, having less sleep, you start accumulating more of a sleep debt. Everything else becomes a lot more stressful, especially you add more stress on top of that. The fact that I had to sleep 11 hours and I still got up to an alarm means that I probably have a pretty massive sleep debt that I haven't repaid yet. So my body says, hey, I'm still stressed out here. Um, and those things can show up as delays too. So one of the, Bell is asking, can you give more info on the alternating beat that you listen to post-workout? I have CNS over stimulus after workouts, which are yeah. pretty mild to begin with which can lead to pretty big crash over the next day or two, multiple head injuries. Curious if this would help only post-workout or at other times and what is, was, and what is it you are listening to? Yeah, I just looked up the name of the app. It's called Brainwave. So B-R-A-I-N-W-A-V-E. And what it is, it's called Binaural Beats. And you can set it up so that when you initially have to wear headphones doing it, because it's slightly altering the hertz from one ear to the other ear. And when you put it on without any background or anything, you'll hear this kind of faint sort of buzzing type noise, which at first you're like, oh my God, this is gonna drive me just bonkers. But your brain actually after a while tunes it out pretty fast. And then on top of that, you can play like relaxing sounds like waterfalls or beach waves or whatever, this pre-programmed things. Um, you can actually play your own music if you want to. And then by changing the beat pattern they use, they've got some that are a little bit more uh, stimulatory for morning, concentration, relaxation, that type of thing. Um, I played around with it for a while. It seems to work pretty good for me. Most of the clients I've worked with, it works pretty good. There's a couple of people that it doesn't really do anything. And there's a couple of people that it's like the greatest thing they've ever done in their life. <laughs> Um, so most people seems to help a little bit and then you've got, you know, kind of your outliers on both sides. And then when you're laying down, there's a whole bunch of different breathing techniques you can do, but in essence, the simplest one is just a form of belly breathing. So just breathing more into your stomach, a little bit more diaphragmatically, uh, less into your upper chest. Um, that in and of itself will actually help you be more, uh, parasympathetic too. So the last question before we kind of shut this down she was asking yeah. how often um i usually find via hrv what is my most stressful session no and then talk, i try to do talk, it after that okay so so essentially your most stressful session you would do the the alternating year thing okay yep i mean you can use it after each one but i just find for biggest bang for your buck so for me uh, string sessions are still the most stressful, um, so that's usually when I use it. So someone's saying, Mike, which brainwave are you tapping into when you've used binaural beats? Yeah, there's all sorts of different ones. There's alpha and theta and blah, blah, blah. So it is sort of brainwave specific. And then also there's sort of the whole body response via the autonomic nervous system. Uh, which is more the parasympathetic or the sympathetic. Um, yeah, 
So some people will respond a little bit different. There's some debate, you know, do you want to be more in a theta wave or not and that type of thing. So I tell people just, you know, play around with it a little bit and, um, and see how it goes. So I don't know because some of them aren't labeled, so I'm not sure exactly what brainwave they're looking for or if it's just uh, a mix between the two. Um, in the research, they actually go by what the frequency is, and then they can look to see what most people would respond to for that. Well, and that's why, you know, I, I bring this up fairly often. You know, when we started the forum, we called it the Science Lab for that reason. And, and what I think you guys should really be, you know, talking to your clients about is that there's always going to be some level of experimentation. What I think happens yep. is people look at it like like it's a bullseye and they they want yeah. they want to do this and they want to hit the bullseye and that's really not the goal of training that's really not the goal of eating and i think if we sell that better then the client's expectations will be handled better and mm -hmm. so you know what you might tell them is that look we're aiming at a target right now you're not as good of an athlete as you might be but if we can hit the target that's a plus okay then as we start to get better and better trying different techniques and using different ideas then we can get closer and closer to the bullseye and then obviously you want to be able to repeat you know that striking of the bullseye but that that takes a while you know if you look at the best body composition the best athletes you know, these are people that have invested a lot of time in themselves. And so, you know, don't look at it like, oh, I need to become Usain Bolt. You know, you look at it as if I take one step more than I did yesterday, I got better. And mm -hmm. that's really sort of the overall topic of what we're trying to do here. And I think that, you know, one of the, one of the, the things that, is nice about being someone who has training as a priority in their life is the instant expectation thing starts to go away and there becomes like this um, serenity as it relates to just doing the work. And, you know, if you get someone in there and they're like, you know, I'm not seeing any changes in the mirror and I'm not seeing this and I'm not seeing that, you know, we have to really sort of cater to kind of their psyche there, you know, and mm -hmm. get them to the point where they understand that that is actually working against them. And you can point to that. You can usually point to them and say, look, that's the stuff that got you here. And yeah. so so the fact that I'm telling you the opposite of what got you here is why you're going to have success. You know, but quit being your own enemy. See a plan through and then let's see what happens. And then just because that plan didn't work doesn't mean that the adjustments that we'll make down the road won't work. But ultimately, when you look at athletes in general seeing progress, what is the biggest factor as it relates to progress? It's consistency. And so mm -hmm. if you can sell someone on the idea that, look, you know, let's focus on consistency, I think ultimately you'll end up getting um, a happier client and then change the expectation, you know, I mean, one of the things that we talk about in coaching a lot in our, in our coaches groups is that, you know, the way that we differ from Weight Watchers is there's really only one way to succeed in Weight Watchers. It's, is my weight down, right? Mm -hmm. And so we say, you know, is your deadlift up? How's your cleanest snatch doing? What's your body fat percentage? there might be 40 different metrics that a person can use to see whether or not they're improving as a human being, right? And, you know, if we can get someone improving as a human being, you know, and we measure results like that, then 
we can see much best much better success and ultimately we know that the better athletes tend to have the better body composition tend to be your relatively healthy things of this nature on the flip side if all we're focusing on is weight being down now all of a sudden we've set ourselves up for failure the whole time and that's you know our job as coaches to kind of you know teach them how some level of intelligence as it relates to progress you know um, is is a way to be a big differentiator yeah, so there's no yeah, no failure ahead. only feedback yeah you know it's just it doesn't you know we're we're the ones we are emotional status that and, and i have a history of doing this too that oh my god this number oh, oh it's so horrible no it just means you're closer farther away do this or do that you know, but we attach a huge emotional significance to the data, you know, and even HRV, a lot of times I still have to tell myself, it's just the number doesn't dictate how I train. It's just giving me data on my body. If it's red, I can still go train. There's no little guy that jumps out of the app and, you know, rests me and, you know, staples me to the chair all day, you know, but it's, it's just data. We get to decide what to do with it in, in the end. Yeah. So on that note, we will end, uh, this was a great call. I think that it's going to be helpful. I would just ask people to be a little bit open-minded as they start yeah. to try these different techniques because I think if you start to look at it and go, well, how can I have my athletes move better? How can I help them avoid injury? You know, these are the types of things that stop people from having clients long-term. And so yeah. if we can keep clients working out continuously pushing that threshold of work you know that's obviously going to be a net plus so i appreciate everybody cool. being here and uh we'll guys. we'll talk to you guys in the groups we won't be doing next thursday um and i so apologize because there's been some miscommunication with with some of these but um we will have one for you it just won't be live so I appreciate everybody being here and we'll talk to you guys later.